Good morning. We're very glad that you're here. It's good to have all the kiddos in with us this morning as well. Uh, I had a dream last night. It's always a dangerous way to start a sermon. And in my dream, I got about a third of the way through the sermon, and every kid just completely wigged out at the same time. <laughs> to the degree that in my dream, I stopped the sermon, and I said, you know, um, uh, we can do this later. It's no big deal. And then Clint, in my dream, got up and decided to wing it with a scavenger hunt. So what I would like to do is start out with prayer that it was not a prophetic dream, uh, but that we would be able to focus on the Lord this morning. So you all pray with me, please. Uh, Lord, we love you. We count it a sweet privilege to uh, be here this morning. Lord, to come here to know that when we offer up prayers, you hear us and you draw near to us. To know that the Holy Spirit is working to give us understanding is a sweet privilege. Lord, I'm thankful that the kids are in here this morning. I pray that um, kids and adults alike would be transformed by the renewal of their minds. Lord, I pray, um, instead of praying for a local pastor this morning, I want to pray for Jim Gatliff of Hunt Baptist Association as he is working and has relationships with so many local pastors, so many area pastors. Uh, my prayer is that, uh, that he would encourage and uh, walk with uh, in a way that is, that is God-honoring. Um, and I pray that uh, you would allow him some sweet conversations with local pastors uh, that he might encourage them in the word. Lord, ultimately this morning, our prayer is that you would overwhelm us with the sweet privilege of knowing you. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Romans chapter 12. This week's sermon is a piggyback sermon off of the final point that Ben made last week. He had three points like any good sermon, and on his third point, he said this, and this, this week's sermon is a piggyback off of what was said. The point was, God's different plans make up one God-glorifying story. The point from last week is that God's different plans make up one God-glorifying story. Ben explained that whether you're Boaz's father, Salmon, or Salmon, whether you're Paul, whether you're a John Piper, whether you're a largely unknown follower of Christ, you're to be all that God has called you to be as a follower of Christ. <clears throat> you're to be all that God has called you to be in the context that he has placed you. So it is from that point that we're going to dive into Romans 12 and consider the specifics of being all that God has called us to be. So look at Romans 12 verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So a map for our morning from this text, this is our key text, these two verses. First, we're going to consider who is making the appeal and where is he making the appeal from. We're going to consider who's making this appeal. He says, I appeal to you. Who's making it? Where is he making it from? 
Second, we're going to look at the, the body of the appeal, the context. What is being appealed? What, what, is, what is being urged upon the hearers? What is the uh, specific content of the, the appeal that's been made? And finally, we're going to consider the responses, both proper and improper, to such an appeal. So look at, back at verse 1. I appeal. I appeal to you. Who is the I? The I is Paul. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with who Paul is, his name used to be Saul. So the guy who's making this appeal has had a name change because as Saul, he is a guy who used to persecute Christians to the point of death. He was a bad dude. Then God's grace and mercy came upon him in such a manner that now, once Saul, now Paul, has at the time this letter was written, completely devoted himself. He has completely devoted himself to the forward movement of the gospel and the health and well-being of the bride of Christ. Because of God's work of mercy in Paul's life, he is very much concerned about the beauty of the bride. Paul expresses this call in his own words by saying that he used to be spent on persecuting Christians in the flesh, but now he'll most gladly spend and be spent on the souls of God's children. Paul used to strive to shut the mouths of Christ followers, but now he is toiling and struggling and striving with all of God's energy that God powerfully works within him, appealing passionately and regularly to the brothers and sisters in Christ to be completely faithful to God's word as God revealed it. Essentially, Paul is making the appeal to others that God has made to him. I want you to see this guy, Paul, making an appeal to the church. And he's making the appeal based on God has done amazing things in my life and God has done amazing things in your life. And so the result is that I want you to live in a manner worthy of what God has done. Now, where is Paul making the appeal from? Obviously, if he's making an appeal, he's going to be in some place geographically, right? We're all in some place geographically right now, correct? Yes, hopefully you're all, yes, we are in some place geographically currently at this point. Okay. Where is Paul making the appeal from? The year is AD 57. This is a couple of decades after the death and resurrection of, of Christ. Paul is writing to the Christian church in Rome. Paul is writing a letter to the Christian church in Rome, and he's doing so from work that he's doing with the Christian church in Corinth. This is an important detail that we're going to come back to in a moment, but for now, I want you to see that this is the who and this is the where of the appeal that's being made in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Now we're going to narrow our, narrow our focus to the content of the appeal that Paul's making. And how does this appeal come together for this God-glorifying story of God's people? What is the aim? <clears throat> what does Paul hope and intend to see in the lives of his hearers? What is it that God has made clear to Paul that Paul now aims to make clear to the church? Look at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. The first thing we need to look at in the body of the appeal that, that Paul is making in chapter 12 of Romans is the word, therefore. Kids, when y'all are studying your Bibles, and adults, when y'all are studying your Bibles, when you see the word, therefore, there's a good question to ask. Ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Because the therefore is there for a reason. So you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Is that clear? Uh, it might be. I'm not sure. What's the therefore, therefore? It always points you back to something for the sake of reference, like a map. Like, have you ever been to a real mall where they have uh, a map and it says, you are here? You ever seen that? 
That, that's a point of reference to say you're not over here, you're not over here, you're here, and you may have been at this point. It's a point of reference to let you know where you are. That's sort of like what a therefore is therefore. This is the biblical approach to helping you connect the dots. In this case, Paul is referring, what's the therefore, therefore? Paul is referring largely to the first 11 chapters of Romans. So this is going to be a really long sermon, 11 chapters. What I'm getting at is this is a really big therefore, a really big therefore. Look at 1136, just one verse before chapter 12. 1136 states what sounds to be sort of a conclusion to a large section, and it says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Who are we talking about there? We're talking about God. Essentially, Paul is saying, I'm making an appeal for you to look at all that God has done. Look at all that God has done. This is all about his glory forever. John Stott, a God-honoring man, theologian, pastor, commentator, he passed away this week. And um, in my first few years of ministry at Crosspoint, I went through uh, Romans with, with students. And it took us three years. And um, I got, I'm preaching from this Bible because this is the Bible that I, that I used during that time. And one of the commentaries that was near and dear to me during that study was John Stott's commentary. And so... John Stott explains the first 11 chapters in a, in a really good way, a really clear way. And so this is what he says. We're trying to figure out what, what is this therefore, therefore. For 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God. Indeed, the gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners in giving his son to die for them and justifying them freely by faith and in sending them his life-giving spirit and in making them his children. So you can hear Paul saying, so I, Paul, in light of these 11 chapters, base this appeal on the mercies of God. They're very great. That's not a minor issue. God has made you his children, and he has done so by the death of his only son. There is a right response to this, and I don't want you to miss it. See, for us this morning, the appeal could be, you just spent eight years in John. You have had 21 chapters of very specific narrative detail expositorily unfolded to you carefully over the course of just over 400 weeks. You have heard and experienced God's mercy and grace abundantly. So I appeal to you to live accordingly. That's what this appeal is. There is a right response to, be, to seeing and understanding and experiencing and receiving such abundant mercy and grace from God. And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 12. Ultimately, it is this right response to grace and mercy that makes up this God-glorifying story, this proclamation of a people who are responding rightly to God's mercy and God's grace that is abundant. So that's the reason that the therefore is therefore. God has done so much. Therefore, now, this is what you do. You following? God has done so much, therefore now, this is what you do. So an appeal is being made, and it's being made specifically to who? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. It's being made to brothers. Paul uses this word very much on purpose. This is a unifying term. Is brothers not a unifying term? It's a unifying term, and it's needed. Remember earlier, 
how I made a point and said we get back to it, how we saw that Paul is making this appeal from the church in Corinth where he's doing work. He's making the appeal to the church in Rome. It would benefit us greatly to consider briefly what Paul means by the term brothers. It is a unifying term, but at this point, it's also sort of a broad term. So he's at the church in Corinth. You can picture him there writing this letter. He's at the church in Corinth, and guess what? The church in Corinth is very messed up. Can you all imagine a church with problems? This church had some major problems. There were divisions in the church. There was immorality of every kind, living that wasn't appropriate to who God is and what God has done. Professing believers were suing each other. Professing believers were fighting with each other. They were wrongly defining marriage. They were active in idolatry. They were becoming intoxicated during the Lord's Supper. That's bad. I cannot imagine pastoring that church. And they were thumbing their noses at God to such an extent that at the end of the second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, Paul urges them to examine yourselves, to see whether you're in the faith or not. It's troubling to Paul that someone would call themselves a brother in Christ, yet have total disregard for the way that God wanted that person to live. Yet, Paul, having experienced the grace and mercy of God, and now full of grace and mercy, actually starts his first letter to the church in Corinth by saying, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. I personally have always wondered, when I read the content of what was going on at the church in Corinth, I've always wondered why Paul didn't start the letter, hey guys, you're not even a church. Like, you're just too messed up. We're not even going to call you a church right now until you get cleaned up. But he addresses them as brothers. I think that the reason is Paul's foremost of sinners mentality that Brad preached on a month and a half or so ago. Paul's foremost of sinners mentality, remember, he used to persecute Christians to the point of death. If a man who previously murdered Christians could be used by God, then there's no reason, um, then there is no one who is hopeless, providing that our approach and emphasis is the gospel. So Paul is rightly full of hope in Christ, and the result is that he continues to sow the seed of the gospel, and what he does is he appeals to a different type of living. He doesn't say, hey, church in Corinth, that's cool. Y'all are pretty dirty. We'll just let you be the dirty church. He says, no, I'm going to appeal to you for a different type of living, and he's appealing now to the church in Rome from the church in Corinth. So I want you to picture Paul at his little desk in Corinth. Kids, picture Paul writing a letter. He sits with his pen and his paper, and he's writing a letter from his little desk in Corinth to the church in Rome. Rome has its own unique set of challenges and distinctions. The thing that Rome and Corinth have in common is that both churches are full of sinners, sort of like hospitals are generally full of sick people who need help. Don't be surprised when you come to the church and it's full of sinners in need of help. Both churches are full of sinners whose only hope for redemption and forgiveness is in Jesus Christ. That's what they have in common. However, the dynamics are not identical. Rome would have sort of been like our New York. What do you think of when you think of New York? Probably a lot of diversity, a melting pot of cultures that results in a lot of different baggage when it comes to religion and belief in God. That's what Rome was sort of like. The biggest differences remain between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, I want you to understand that the Christian church is not made up of every Jew and every Gentile. 
You had some Jews and some Gentiles who say, I hear the gospel, I hear what you say about Christ, and I repent and I follow Jesus. And so those Jews and those Gentiles now are making up what is known as the very early Christian church. But the Jews and the Gentiles are very different. For the first time ever, Jew and Gentile are reclining together at the Lord's table, and it doesn't take long to realize, hey, we all now call ourselves Christians, but we look very different. You can imagine the differences. These differences weren't over mere preferences. The Jews were actually looking at the Gentiles, whose entire lifestyle seems to the Jews unacceptable by God. And then the Gentiles are looking at the Jews and saying, hey, you guys need to lighten up a little bit and be a little bit more like us. And Paul's looking at both of them and saying, you all need to be more like Jesus. Kind of like last week, um, uh, uh, Peter, you don't need to focus on John. You, you worry about Peter. John's not going to focus on Peter. He's going he's to worry about John. Jew, don't worry about Gentile. You worry about yourself. Gentile, do the same. It's the same thing that's happening here. And Paul is saying both of you need to focus more on Jesus. The church is not made up of identical cookie-cutter personalities. We're often diversely different. By God's design, we're different. The Christian church in America today looks very different than the Christian church in Central Asia or the Christian church in the Middle East. So I want us to see that when Paul uses the term brothers, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, he's speaking to groups of people who are very different. He is addressing Jews, Gentiles, New believers who still struggle greatly with the flesh, old believers who struggle in different ways, and everyone in between who bears the name brother. And I want you to see that Paul isn't winking at their sin saying, ah, it's okay, we're all brothers, we get it, we're sinners. He's not winking at their sin. He's saying, whether you are judgmental and looking down your nose at others, or whether you are unlovingly making use of your freedoms to eat meat sacrificed to idols, whether you think it's still okay to get drunk or whether you think it's still okay to take your Christian brother to court, let me make one thing very clear. I appeal to you to live in a way that's appropriate to what God has done for you in Christ. So Paul goes on to say, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, this is all about look at God's mercies, my appeal to you is on that basis, to do something. And what is it to do? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. Now, usually when one explains salvation in Christ, what do they urge the non-believer to give to God? Usually, the urging is give your heart to God, right? Paul's saying, yes, give your heart to God, but also give your bodies to God as well. I'm not looking for ethereal changes that simply happen inwardly. It's not enough to just say you belong to God. Live for him in a sacrificial way every day. You are to be holy, set apart for God, and acceptable by God. The changes are not all completely inward. They are first inward, but they make their way outward at some point. Kids, do y'all know the song, This Little Light of Mine? Yes, you do. That was resounding yes. The song, This Little Light of Mine. That song is ultimately saying, my relationship with God's not a secret. Hide it under a bush? No. Little let it shine. Won't let Satan it out. I'm going to let it shine. You know the song. What that means is that 
It's not a matter of we live our life and we try to fit God in at certain places or we keep the part about God a secret. What we do is we present our bodies to God so that the very actions, the very words, the very responses, the things we do show we follow God. His mercies in Christ are great and it changes the way I live. It's not supposed to be a secret. Turn to Romans 3. Most of our satellites are coming from the book of Romans on purpose because we need to see the sweetness of this awesome, awesome story. Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. Before I read this, I want you to see that Paul is making it clear that before these great mercies of God by which he's making this appeal, before the mercies of God, this is what your bodies look like, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. Before God's mercy, this is what you looked like. This was your sin default mode. This was your natural response to things happening. Romans 3, verse 9 through 18. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Hear the mind. No one understands. Before the mercies of God, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat, your body, is an open grave. They use their tongues, part of the body, to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips, a part of the body. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet, a part of the body, are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes, a part of the body. You present your body to God now, rightly, because before mercy and grace, this was your body. It was all being used for the wrong reason and was not working in accordance with who God is and what God has done. In short, it's not okay to say you belong to God, yet continue to live like this. You present your bodies. We have to see that for either the Jew or Gentile, to be urged to present their bodies as a living sacrifice is a pretty major thing. We have to consider the context here. First, let's consider the context for the Jew. Paul was a Jew. For the Jew, essentially Paul is saying, Jewish brother, member of ethnic Israel, offspring of Abraham, all that you and your ancestors have ever known is a sacrificial system where you bring a sacrifice so that you can be accepted by God. That's all y'all have ever known for about 1,500 years. Some Jewish brother... I want you to know that God has offered a sort of sacrifice to himself. You've been acquainted, Jewish brother, with the concept of bringing us a lamb for sacrifice for the Passover, but you need to know, Jewish brother, that Jesus Christ is your Passover lamb. So now things are different. They're different than they've been for 1,500 years. Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And because he has fulfilled it, His righteousness is counted as yours, and you are now accepted by God. In response to this, 
You don't bring goats or lambs or bulls to worship anymore. Kids, can you all imagine how loud it would be if we all had to bring goats and bulls and lambs to worship so that we'd be accepted by God? Paul's saying, no, now you bring yourself. Bring yourself to worship. Live a life of worship. Because of Jesus, you now present your bodies, not a bull or a goat. Because of Jesus, you, not an external offering, are now considered holy and acceptable and a fragrant aroma. So to the Jew, to the ethnic Israelite, this appeal would have been no small thing. It really was a game changer for them. It's a change in the way of living in response to the mercies of God in Christ Jesus. Now for the Gentile, Paul was essentially saying, Gentiles, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Gentile who I now call brother, you were one who had no hope. And you were without God in the world. Gentile, who I now call brother, at best, you may have made a sacrifice at some point to a pagan God. At best, you may have watched from a distance as the ethnic Israelites brought their sacrifices to the one true God. But Gentile, who, I now, I call, who now I call brother, now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And because of this, for those who repent from their sin and follow Jesus, you are now acceptable and holy and pleasing to God. Present yourself to him for his work. My Gentile brother in Christ, this is the only response that is right given the mercies of God. Turn to Romans 6. This passage helps us to understand what this presentation looks like. He's saying, I appeal to you to present your bodies to the Lord So what does this presentation look like? Look at verses 12 through 14 in Romans chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. I want you to see a struggle here. I don't want you to hear me saying sin's not a big deal anymore. You're not going to, you shouldn't struggle with sin anymore. That's not what I'm saying. This is saying let not decisively active Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members here, tongue, lips, hands, eyes, feet. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, not unrighteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So we can see from these verses that Paul's call to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice is in part a call to kill sin. In part, that's what this is. You don't dabble in sin. You don't wound sin. You don't play around with sin. You kill it. You don't present your hands and your feet and your eyes and your minds to sin. For to do so, is to be an instrument of unrighteousness. And what do we remember from the first chapter of Romans in verse 18? Paul tells us that it is the wrath of God that is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. So the way that you use your body can either put the truth of God on display or suppress the truth about God so people can't see it. 
It's not enough to just say that you're a Christian. Your tendency toward anger, your tendency toward profanity, your tendency toward impatience, your tendency toward promiscuity, your tendency toward even laziness can be and is meant to be changed by the mercies of God. He's saying, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Turn to Romans 8. Trying to keep us going to the right. Much of what happens with our bodies first happens where? In our minds. Much of what we do with our bodies first happens in our minds. We think about it, and then we do it. Or we think about it, and then we don't do it. Look at verse 5 in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Just for a moment, ask this question with me. What kinds of things do you spend the majority of your day thinking about? What have you spent the majority of your morning thinking about before you came to corporate worship? Is it spirit stuff or flesh stuff? Is it eternal stuff or temporary stuff? What are your kids thinking about? How are their minds being fed? Is it TV? When's the last time they heard mommy or daddy read from the Bible? See, for both you and your children, is there enough biblical input for you to have something of the Spirit to set your mind on? If you hear the Scripture saying, set your mind on the things of the Spirit if you live by the Spirit, when you go to your mind, is there anything up there where you can set your mind on the things of the Spirit? What kind of diet is your mind getting? Look at verses 6 through 8 in Romans 8. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not Submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And listen to this huge verse. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We're not foolishly hopeful. It's not like, I'm in the flesh. Maybe we'll please God a little bit. No. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You must see that fleshly thinking is not passive or neutral. To set your mind on the flesh is death, and it's hostile to God. Some of you may have been told that it's okay to think about something as long as you don't act on it. But this passage says that's not true. This passage would suggest otherwise. Just the thought is hostility towards God. So be careful where you set your mind. Is it on the flesh or on the spirit? Turn back to Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular, This is a sweet picture of unity. Here, where many bodies are presented as one sacrifice. Romans 15 verse 6 explains this as a coming together of many with one voice, like a choir, glorifying God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the heart of this God-glorifying story. It's not so much that you have your little story about how you glorify God, and you have your little story about how you glorify God, and you have your little story about how you glorify God. No, it's about many bodies coming together as one sacrifice. Our story, the story of a people, 
Many people coming together with one voice. Our voice, the voice of a people because of the story of a people because God is redeeming a people for his glory. Next, I want you to see that this is our spiritual worship. Our spiritual worship. Ooh, what is that? Our spiritual worship. Is that a deeper level? It sounds ethereal and heady. Is this what spiritual people do? Does this go beyond practical to something much cooler? Is this the kind of thing that you can't explain but can only experience It's spiritual? Your spiritual worship? Some of you may have a footnote in your Bible that says, or your rational service. Your spiritual worship or your rational service. The Greek word for spiritual in this text is logikos. What's that sound like? Which simply means logical or rational or reasonable. I love this. People often refer to things as spiritual where they're trying to say that it can't be explained and only felt. It's too deep for me to try to put it into words. As if you have to go beyond rational thinking to something deeper and more spiritual. But sometimes the most spiritual thing is the most practical. Sometimes the most spiritual thing is the most sensible. And that is what this passage is saying. Your worship goes beyond singing songs. Your worship means presenting your body to God for his service as he sees fit, given the mercies that have been poured out on your life in Christ by God. It is both reasonable and sensible and rational that you would live in such a manner. We're not having to dig deep here. We say, look at the mercies of God. Maybe I should live in a certain way according to what he says. It makes the most sense. Look at the flip side of it. To do otherwise, to see these abundant mercies and grace of God, and then to go and live according to your own purposes and to live for your own glory and to care more about what people think of you than your God, well, that makes no sense biblically. I, I changed my notes. I, I had in my notes that it makes little sense biblically, and I thought, no, 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 that makes no sense biblically. Look at all that God has done. Go live for your own glory. No sense. What makes the most sense is for you to live according to his purposes, given all that he's done. This is an important point. Paul, again, is not winking at anyone's sin. You have to see this. Remember, each of the brothers being addressed has different struggles in regard to the flesh. Paul isn't saying that sin isn't a big deal because ultimately we're all brothers. He's not saying, hey, sin's not a big deal. We're all brothers in Christ now. What he's saying is that we're all brothers because we've been made sons. Think about that. Your brothers and sisters in Christ because you have been made sons and daughters by God. It's a big deal. It's not okay to be more Jewish than you are godly. It's not okay to be more Greek than you are godly. It is certainly not okay to be more American than you are godly. It's not okay to be more fleshly or worldly than you are godly. Again, John Stott makes a great comment on this, this text. He says, God's grace, far from encouraging or condoning sin, is the spring and foundation of righteous conduct. You don't see His grace and then try to muster righteous conduct. His grace is the spring and foundation of righteous conduct. It makes sense 
What manner of living is worthy of what God has done? Look at verse 2 in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When you look at the tenses of all the verbs, we have all the kids in here right now. I understand that, so we're not going to go into the breakdown of all of it. But if you just look at the tenses of the verbs in these verses, one could say this. Pay close attention. If you are not actively transformed by the renewal of your mind, you will be passively conformed to this world. I'll say it again. If you are not actively transformed by the renewal of your mind, you will be passively conformed to this world. Remember what we engaged two weeks ago. Anything worth listening to is worth thinking about, right? Anything worth listening to is worth thinking about. And what happens when the good seed hits the good soil? The result is understanding. It's hugely important that a Christian aware of God's abundant mercy sets themselves towards transformation to be more Christ-like. And this is done by the renewal of your mind. That's why we care so much about good teaching. That's why Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch on your teaching and on your life, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do not let the teaching be jeopardized. When you see false teaching, call it what it is, because the way that your people think is hugely important. It's not okay to just think about whatever comes to mind. We have to actively be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Think of your mind before Christ as old and busted. But in Christ, transformation is expected to take place by the renewal of your mind, your mind being made new, no longer towards its natural fleshly tendencies. In Romans 10, don't turn there, but listen. In Romans 10, there were some, some Jews in Romans 10. And these aren't the Jews who were now professing Christ and were a part of the Christian church. These were the Jews who were continuing in tradition and, and, and still rejecting Christ. But they were very zealous about God. In Romans 10, you have Jews that are very zealous about God. That means they have a zeal for God. That means that when I say God, they would say, yeah. Zeal, zeal, I'm pro-God, yay God. But it says that that zeal was not according to knowledge. Here, lack of understanding. That zeal was not according to transformation by the renewal of your mind. It was according to what I want to think according to tradition. And for those Jews who were zealous about God, but not according to knowledge, the result was that they were unsaved. You see that? Because there was not transformation by the renewal of their minds, though they were zealous about God and had a zeal for God, they were still unsaved because the part about Jesus had not been working in their minds for transformation by renewal. So Christianity, it's not just academia and head knowledge. But we must see the need for engagement of the truth with our minds. When we write curriculum here, when we try to figure out what small groups are going to talk about, when we consider your children, we care about how they think and how you think. We believe 
that you will not be conformed to the world if indeed you are transformed by the renewal of your mind. We take it very seriously. Romans 14 calls it being fully convinced as to what you believe. Don't be wishy-washy. Be fully convinced as to what you believe. It was Paul who said that the breathed out word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work, that he may be competent. There is an outward expression of change that has truly happened in the heart and in your mind. But if this change does not happen, if you reject the appeal that Paul gives to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, if the change does not happen, if regular daily transformation by the renewal of your mind does not happen, you will not just kind of float about on the status quo. You will sink. Kids, when y'all learn to swim, if some of you may have learned to swim, hopefully, before you learn to swim, what are you good at? Sinking. It's a parent's worst nightmare. When you're teaching the kids how to swim, you've got to keep an eye on them because you know if they can't swim, the only thing they're good at is sinking. But then once you learn to swim, there's something called buoyancy. And you realize you can take in some air and you can kind of lean back and you can just kind of float where you are neither sinking or swimming. You're just sort of floating about. That's not what happens in your Christian life. It's not what happens. You sink if you're not swimming. What I mean is this. If you are not transformed, and this is an ongoing daily transformation, then you will be conformed to the world. What will happen is the world will squeeze you into its mold. The world will squeeze you into its mold and try to make you look the way it looks. When this is happening, Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 4 that it's the God of this world who is aiming to blind the minds of unbelievers from seeing the glory of God on the face of Jesus Christ. To me, that's one of the saddest things that can happen to someone who once proclaimed Jesus Christ. The second half of verse 2 explains that it says that it is by testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I want you all to see that this is how the story comes together as a God-glorifying story. In every circumstance, Christian people, in every circumstance, every conversation, every reaction, every word, every move, every thought, every proclamation, I want you to see that in every circumstance, even the kids when you're at school or at home or with your siblings, in every circumstance, the child of God, in response to the mercies of God, by use of the Word of God, tests what would best put the glory of God on display. I'll repeat that because it's really, really important. In every circumstance, the child of God, in response to the mercies of God by use of the Word of God, tests and thinks and tries to figure out how can I best put the glory of my God on display in what I'm about to do. You present yourself to God first, not second. What this means is for, the, for those of you grown people who have real jobs, you're not first an employee and then I'll try to bring God along. You present yourself to God first, then you go to your employer. For those of you who are in school, you're not first a student and then you're there at school and you're there and now I'm going to try to bring God along a little bit. You present yourself to God first, 
Because that is the way that you glorify God in things that don't seem to be about God. That means when you're at work and you're thinking this is a normal work day, no one's thinking about God, you're supposed to say, hey, God has something to say about this. Let's have some character. Let's love each other. Let's encourage one another. Let's serve. Let's not grumble. Why? Because of what God has done, because of the mercies and grace that he's poured out on us. Present yourself to God first, not second. Paul is ultimately appealing to Christians to live for the purpose you were created. You're not fitting God in along the way. You have a created purpose, and that created purpose is to glorify God. Your borrowed breath. Kids, when you take a breath, (gasps) that was borrowed. You didn't earn it. It was borrowed. God gave it to you, and he gives you a borrowed breath to be used for his glory. You are not here to collect treasure. You are not here to build bigger barns. You are not here to experience something neat in the way of cultural excitement. Your created purpose is to glorify God. This is what it means to be a living sacrifice. For a moment, briefly, step back with me to Matthew 13. Don't turn there, just in your minds. Transformation by the renewal of your minds. Go with me to Matthew 13. In the parable of the soils, I want you to remember that what happens when good seed hits good soil. There's a yield, and what's the yield? It's either 30 or 60 or 100. That means that When the good seed hits good soil, you get back 30 times what you put into it, or 60 times what you put into it, or 100 times what you put into it. I want you to see this. The life that produces the 30-fold yield does not do so because they're 70% worldly. Please see this. The life that produces a 30-fold yield does not do so because they're still 70% worldly and dabbling in sin in the flesh the majority of the time. The life that produces a 60-fold yield of faithfulness and fruitfulness to God does not do so because there's still 40% given to the world and to sin and the flesh. It is because they spend the majority, it is not because they spend the majority of their time steeped in the flesh and sin. I don't want you to think that it's okay to dabble in sin just as long as you give something to God. This passage is getting to wholeheartedness in worship. This passage is referring to good soil, not the soil of worldliness and the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches. The passage did not say, you may produce 30-fold because you still are consumed with the deceitfulness of riches. That's bad soil. We're talking about good soil. It is a 100% effort to put sin to death and display God's glory that results in a 30-fold yield. It's a 100% effort to put sin to death and display the glory that results in a 60-fold yield. And on the flip side of the same coin, those who produce a hundredfold yield do not do so because they no longer struggle with sin. It's only because of the faithfulness of God and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit and a real aim to be transformed by the renewal of their minds and not be conformed to the world that any yield is given at all. So to use the, the language from last week, whether you're doggy paddling, I'm just barely making it. Whether you're crossing the Red Sea and saying, we're all going to die, or this is awesome. Whether you're doggy paddling, whether you're swimming in full stride, you do so as one responding to the call to present your whole body from the tip of your head to the bottom of your toes and everything in between. You present your whole body as a living sacrifice. Know that you are not swimming solo. You have teammates who will help you along and give you a hand. But as teammates, our help must be biblical. We don't say, it's okay, we all sin. 
I can't stand that phrase. It's true. We all sin. But it's not okay because we all sin. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Put sin to death. Do not be conformed to the world. That's what we encourage people with. That's what we encourage each other with. And when we're doggy paddling and barely making, that's what someone encourages us with. Our help must be biblical. Those who live according to the flesh cannot please God. So this God-glorifying story is comprised of characters like you and me who consider the mercies of God and press forward to live for Him completely, not partially. That's your created purpose. What you must see today is that you must be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So my encouragement to you is to beg the Spirit for understanding. God's aim is not that you would look like the world. Rather, His aim is that your living would show others how the world and all of its treasures are rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing God. Ask the Spirit for understanding. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Transformation by the renewal of your mind is a daily, expected, appropriate thing for the Christian who considers the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Paul's appeal is a big appeal. And I, my prayer is that we would heed the appeal and respond appropriately. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for not leaving us Thank you for not leaving us to live according to the ways of the world. Thank you for not leaving us to the flesh. Lord, I thank you for your patience. I thank you that when you tell us to be patient and long-suffering, that that we can do so because that's what you've done. Psalm 78, you reveal to us in beautiful words, breathed out by you, how you're patient with your people, but your expectation for your people doesn't change. So my prayer for this people is that we would heed the appeal that Paul has made and that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that we would see the importance of engaging truth week by week, and that we would see the importance of not just going and talking about it more, but going and being doers of the word and not hearers only, as though we were hypocrites. Lord, help us to present our whole bodies as a living sacrifice. Help us to see this God-glorifying story where we have the opportunity to put your, glo- your glory on display as many bodies coming to you as one sacrifice, as many different people coming to you with one voice to proclaim how glorious and wonderful our great God is in response to the mercies that have been poured out in our lives. Lord, I'm eager to get to the supper this morning, to recline at the table with you, and to know that you're present. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're about to take the Lord's Supper, as we do every week. It is part of being transformed, transformation by the renewal of your mind. We do this weekly. And here's what I want us to see this morning as we take the supper. We do not approach this table because we have earned the right to. 
We do not approach this table to take the Lord's Supper because we've earned the right to. We have been granted access in Christ. We've been granted access in Christ. His sacrifice reminds us of the call placed on our lives to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. So here's my encouragement. As we pass the bread, consider Christ's sacrifice and ask the Holy Spirit to show you the ways that you can present your body, your members to God for righteousness and not to sin for unrighteousness. This time as we pass the bread, this time should be a time of both repentance from sin and preparation to be used by God as he sees fit. Focus on those things as we pass the bread. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I urge you to see yourself as once being far off and by grace and mercy brought near. And because of that mercy that is so abundant, we live accordingly. We present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Take and drink. Lord, I'm thankful for the supper. I'm thankful for the reminder. I'm thankful that you call us to specific remembrance of what you have done. I'm thankful that we are not to be vague about the movement of our great God because I'd probably forget things and I'd miss details. I'm thankful that the supper brings us back to the realities of mercy and grace, the realities of sacrifice, the realities of blood for your glory. Lord, as we continue in worship, as we continue in song, as we continue in giving, I pray that we would be wholehearted. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, you did wonderful this morning. It was not a prophetic dream. Thank the Lord. Um, I just want to make sure you hear this morning. Don't hear something that's works-based. Hear something that is about our faith and how it has a proper outward expression. The text this morning is not saying, go and, 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 and earn something, or go and prove that you, you deserve it. It's saying go and worship accordingly. Mercy is not being given what you deserve. Grace is being given that which you don't deserve. God has poured out both abundantly on us in our lives. And our response is not to try and earn some part of it or not to try and prove some worth in it, but to say, all of my worth is found in Christ. So my life completely and wholeheartedly, I want to be transformed by the renewal of my mind so I can present my body as a living sacrifice to God. It's a response. That's what worship is. Worship is a response to God revealing himself to us. And this text this morning shows us our created purpose and how we respond appropriately. Let's stand and pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, I'm uh, thankful.
Again, I pray that you would allow us to go and be doers of the word and not hearers only. I pray that you would keep us from being hypocrites. I pray that you would keep us from being conformed to the world and keep us from being um, given to the flesh. Lord, as we live by the Spirit, my prayer is that we would walk by the Spirit. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You all have a good day.